Hey everyone, before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Backrow YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my jolly good co-host. Ah, jolly good, jolly good, you know, and, and excited about raising a, a pint in jolly old England together in March. Mm, and, uh, well. you know, we're so in sync. Look, we're, we're, we're dressed alike. That was not Green. planned. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I lost my voice when I went to Vegas for the conference. You lost your voice last night. So we'll, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll muddle through this. Um, but you know, just quick, uh, quick reveal, you know, I, I'm wearing the modern day wizards hood, you know, the hoodie, mm, uh, to go with, you know, I got the Bitcoin orange cause it's Bitcoin Friday and I have the internet wizard. I mean, uh, the, you know, Bitcoin wizard. Uh, and, and the key there is it's the hashtag I use join us, right? It's time to, you know, most people listening to this, they already have, you're already part of the club, but people just need to get off zero. It, it is time. I mean, this is going to be the most powerful movement, both in terms of people, volume, value uh, that we've seen so far. And each one, each successive one will get bigger. That's the, the law of large numbers. But this one's, so it's going to be powerful. So join us. Yeah, next week. Well, thank you for calling it. I, I do. I have lost my voice. If you're uh, cringing with your ears listening to me, sorry, just bear with me here. I hope it'll be back by next week. But uh, I, I tend to agree with you, Mark. I feel like we're at the on the precipice here of real, actual institutional adoption, something that you and I have been talking about for years. I mean, you've really been beating the drum about this since 2014. Right. I, you <laughs> know, it's, so it's really funny. I, um, somebody, somebody, somebody pointed out, you know, on the, on the net, I love, I love the thing about Twitter that people can go back and, and call you out good or bad. And someone gave me a shout out. They said, you know, you've been telling people to get off zero since, since Bitcoin was 19,000 in, in 2018. I'm like, I mean, in, in 2021, I'm like, well, actually the first time I hashtag get off zero was, 2018 and Bitcoin was $6,700. But, um, and, and to your point, it was even before that back in, in 1415, where, you know, I, I went to my clients, institutional clients for the first time, first quarter of 14. And they're like, you're an idiot. Don't, don't talk about that. that that's just stupid. And, you know, and that was, that was painful. And um, by 15, you know, we got a couple people to listen to us, not very many, um, but a few. And really, 16, 17, they stopped calling me stupid and, and at least just said, oh, bless your heart. You know, so the good Southern, like, you're stupid. But uh, anyway, here we are. And, and they're coming. Everybody's coming. Literally everybody. And First couple weeks of January, you know, kind of the kickoff for our, our London event. Uh, BlackRock ETF is going to get approved. Tens, actually, no, 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 hundreds, plural, hundreds of billions of dollars 
are going to go into Bitcoin. And that's going to trickle down through the ecosystem and and the digital age will be here. And, and the thing about it is we've been talking about this, right? 2024 is the 14-year cycle. Mm. And it's only six weeks away. I mean, we are six weeks away from the beginning, the beginning of this powerful 14-year tech cycle with, you know, blockchain at the core. And I, I just, I'm super psyched. Hey, me too. Me too. And BlackRock is going to be there in, in London with us, actually. Uh, we're going to announce a new slate of speakers, so that's going to be a lot of fun. I also, I have our uh, our London fun fact that Again, I- Again, probably I a fad, right? Probably I mean, a fad. probably a fad that, that the largest asset manager in the world is going to come to a digital asset conference, you know, by the original- digital asset conference guys. Uh, you guys were there at the beginning. No, you were. You guys were there at the beginning. I mean, look, one of my meaningful regrets is I couldn't convince you to to join us and and uh, give me part of the company, but you know, I tried. But I know. Hey, look, it's a, it's a long life. I'm sure we can uh, there's plenty of stuff that we can yeah, do. There's there's plenty of opportunities. There's plenty of opportunities. All right. So here's my fun fact for you about London. This one actually is a, is a pretty cool one. So when engineers were first designing the London Underground, engineers proposed that instead of having tracks, you could actually fill the tunnels with water and use barges to float people from station to station instead of trains. So here's my question to you, Mark. Do you think that would be better? Because on the one hand, I'm sort of picturing like a Venice style canal and there's this whole European experience. On the other hand, I'm like, Undergrounds are kind of dirty, man. Also, that sounds slow. Sometimes I just got to get to where I'm going to go. Is that a better experience or is it not a better experience? Um, I think the the, the Venice kind of image, yeah, lovely. Low, slow, very slow. Um, look, people complain about the tube and, and you know, the underground and uh, I love it. I, I think it's awesome. I mean, it's and New York for it's sure. So, it's clean. Oh my it, God. It's so efficient. It's so good. But yeah, I, a tunnel full of water from the Thames. Yeah, that would, that'd be smelly. It would be full of rats and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they went the other way. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at BlockWorks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, BlockWorks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, etc., and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS. London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets. So that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code, Margin20. So 
Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. Talk to you about uh, CPI. So we had uh, inflation numbers come in this week, uh, and they were notable. I think they grabbed headlines because on a month-over-month basis, this is the first time in a long time that the headline CPI growth, again, month-over-month, not year-over-year, was 0%. So what we're looking at here is U.S. headline and core month-over-month contributions. Now, what we the the expectation, the survey was 0.1% growth on headline and 0.3% on core came in low. The actual uh, uh, headline growth was 0% and 0.2%. Now, if you're following along via video, it's a little bit confusing on this chart because you know there's a there you you can see the part the services and energy which is still positive, but that gets canceled out by energy uh, and and goods which is negative, so it equates to zero. So. I guess Mark, I, we, we, I want to get into the market reaction uh, to this to this uh, top line contribution. I think there's still a lot going on in terms of supply in the treasury market, which is driving prices. But yep. what do you think about this the CPI number? Look, I mean, we you and I have been talking about this literally for for a year, and and we said that you know that inflation that everybody was was worried about actually wasn't inflation. You know, my my view has always been it's it's never been inflation. It's never been excess demand for limited supply of goods. It was always currency devaluation, which caused oil prices to rise and the lockdown, you know, horrible policy decisions, which messed up the supply chain, which made used car prices go up, you know, for a short period of time. All of that is now gone the other way and we're back to where we were. And, and yet, the market reacts to it like it's some massive amount of good news. And, you know, I think, I think we're up 10% plus in, in November here in equity markets. Now, I'll, I'll explain why that is. And again, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It isn't inflation. It isn't anything other than the November effect, which used to be called the January effect. And it's the fact that you know, people sell all their bad stuff in October. When I say people, meaning the, the mutual funds, they have to sell before October 31st for the their fiscal year. And then they have to wait 30 days to buy it back. So that's been moving, or it used to be, you know, right before October 31st. Then it was like October 15th. Then it was like the first couple of weeks of October. And so what was happening is there was this rally, then 30 days later in first part of November, and everybody said, oh, it's the Santa Claus rally. It's like, no, it's not the Santa Claus rally. It's, it has nothing to do with Santa Claus. Santa Claus is a mythical person. But this has to do with real people buying real stocks um, 30 days after they sell them for tax losses. And that's what's happening, I think, in the markets. And there were a lot of people who were short, who got caught offsides, just like the Bitcoin rally. People were short and they got caught offsides. And so we get this this big rally, and then and then they they misinterpret this. You know, we're at three percent, and you know, Professor Plum, Mike Green was was on a clip I saw on, on Twitter. It was kind of funny. He's like, people do realize that three percent means prices are still rising, right? They they're rising less than they were the month before and six months before, but, but they're still rising. Right. I mean, people do understand that, but I guess not. 
Yeah. Okay. I've got a, I've got a question for you about that. So one, all right, I'm going to skip a couple slides ahead here and talk to you about inflation expectations. So this is, this is looking at the, the one year inflation expectations and three year inflation expectations. You'll notice that the one year is a little bit higher, just over three and a half percent, but the three year inflations are still around 3%. And one thing that I'm, I'm trying to connect it actually stood out to me was there was a really great uh, interview that was recently done between Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller, where where Stan is talking about his you know sort of perspective views on the market over the course of the next couple of years. You know, TLDR, he's he's very worried about the fiscal situation and debt, but he had a couple comments on inflation that stood out to me, and one in which he sort of gave his base case, and the other which he gave his bear case for you to be watching out for. And the thing that grabbed headlines was. You know, we should be ready for eight to nine percent inflation, which is you know, that that's kind of the headline. Oh, Stan Druckenmiller said that you should worry. But the actually, I thought the more interesting thing was that his base case was that inflation was around three or four percent. So in Stan's in Stan's mind, inflation's around three, four percent, maybe. Now I'm looking at one and three year inflation expectations around three, three and a half percent. And the whole market is acting as if the Fed has beaten the inflation fight. And there's a little bit of a discrepancy there from, from where I sit because last time I checked, the Fed's inflation target was 2%. So are we all just going to be happy with 3%? Like, what are yields going to do then to, to match it? Do you see what I'm saying? I'm just a little, I'm having trouble uh, squaring that circle. What do you think? No, look, uh, 100%. And I, I, I never like to disagree with Paul. I mean, uh, yeah, with Paul too. No. With Stan Druckenmiller, um, he was talking to Paul Tudor Jones, but I, ne- I, I, I just don't like to be on the other side of investment legends, right? And but I, I, I just vehemently disagree um, with this whole idea that, that inflation is going to go to to high single digits. Uh, look, I, I think inflation is driven by working age population growth, and working age population growth stinks. You know, it's, it's headed to sub 1%. Uh, the boomers keep aging every day, 10,000 more of us turn 65. You know, I still got a ways to go, but, but it's going to happen. And that I, I just think we're going to be much more in a deflationary environment than an inflationary environment. And look, the 2% number, it's, it's, it's just the theft target. There, 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 there's no, there's no normal reason for quote unquote prices to rise just because prices should rise when demand exceeds supply. That's economics 101. But this idea that, that by increasing the money supply and therefore devaluing the currency, because that's all this, this inflation target really is. It's a devaluation of currency target and the big spike. And, and the expectations lag the reality. So these expectations weren't before the Fed printed all the money. It was after the Fed printed all the money. And then magically people were shocked, shocked, I tell you, that the prices of things and the quote unquote value of things went up. And we've talked ad nauseum about this. They didn't. My house did not get more valuable. It just didn't. It, the money got worse. And 
now for the first time in a hundred years, they're restricting the money supply. They had negative money supply growth for the first time in a hundred years. And so that's why this, you know, on the left-hand side, you got this sharp, sharp drop in inflation expectations, because if you look at the money supply, and if, if you overlaid the money supply chart with this chart, the money supply chart would have like a six, seven month lead and it would make the same thing, but the, the drop would be even more sharp. And, and that's because humans tend not to believe things until they really, really happen. So I, I, I think there's so much talk about inflation. There's so much talk about, uh, you know, the Fed. Uh, at the end of the day, liquidity drives markets. And you want to know why November has rallied? I mean, part of it is what I explained in terms of, of the, the tax loss buying. After, I mean, the tax, the tax loss selling and then the subsequent buying. But the real reason, and this came from, from cross-border capital, who was amazing. Um, I was going to reference that. Yeah, he came on the show this week. He did, yeah, he's agreeing and, with basically everything you're saying. By the yeah, way. And, and basically there was a uh, uh, infusion of liquidity uh, globally, uh, particularly out of China. China. China is setting up for a, a really powerful move. I mean, their stocks are super cheap. Um, you know, she is out on the road, get, you know, got a standing ovation in San Francisco and people are up in arms about it. And like, well, basically he said, I'm not going to go to war. I'm not going to take Taiwan. I mean, he didn't say exactly I'm not going to take Taiwan because in his mind, Taiwan is already part of China. So he doesn't need to take it. But um, he made a bunch of comments that were really quite good. And the PBOC is pumping you know, close to a trillion dollars into the economy to, to, to save the, the, you know, real estate market from, from crumbling and the banking system. So that liquidity trickles its way through the system. And the only reason we're not really blowing and going is because of Stan's observation on the fiscal system. I mean, the fiscal situation, the U S fiscal situation is, crazy bad, like horrible bad. I mean, we are spending money we don't have in places we don't need to be spending it. And that means that we're going to have a big debt problem. And and that's the thing that I, I separate the two. I think interest rates can rise actually pretty dramatically in a, in a crisis without inflation being there. Yeah. Okay. Whatever to unpack there. One, so on this whole, I, I have a, I don't know, I've been sort of sitting on this idea for a while that I have had trouble articulating, but there are sort of two camps of people when it comes to the fiscal and debt situation problem. And there's one camp of people, which, you know, resonates with what you said, which is basically, this is one of the largest problems of our times. We've let things go completely out of control. We're in totally un uncharted territory, not just here in the US, but the rest of the world. Yeah. There's no way to pay back this debt. Something's got to give. Then there's this other group that says, it's actually, look, we've actually had levels of debt to GDP like this before. We are the global reserve currency. Actually, you know, if anything, the last couple of years that people, it has proved that people want US debt more than they ever have. Um, and actually, you know, we can kind of print the money that we need uh, in order to just survive this. And I sort of think 
these two groups of people are talking past each other on timeframes, actually. And, and that's sort of my assessment. And I, on the one hand, I empathize with the, with the group that says, look, I've been in financial markets for 40 years and people have been saying this the whole time I've been around and it's never been an issue. And it's because we have much more capacity and a really valuable economy and the reserve currency and all of this stuff. But I, but I also empathize with the idea that I've, there's never been a country that this hasn't been an issue for eventually. And actually, if you look at the U.S.'s you know, share of global GDP, whatever, however you want to measure it, we're actually less influential than we used to be you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So this is the conversation that's been, like I said, it's been had since the beginning of time. And if you go back to 1913, which is chosen specifically for, for the, the beginning of the transition in 1913, who was the dominant superpower in the world? 1913. Yeah, I should know. Come on, England. It's where we're going. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, give me a softballs here, Michael. England, <laughs> England, where we, where we are headed in March. England was the dominant superpower. The sun never set on the British Empire in 1913. And then two things happened. One, they invaded Mesopotamia, went to war, a war they couldn't afford, and they got massively indebted. The pound sterling collapsed. And it began the, it was the beginning of a 30 year transition, 31 year transition to loss of the world reserve currency and forfeiture to the United States. Another thing happened in 1913. Curiously, the Fed was created. Yeah. And the Fed, okay, the Fed financed the war machine that then allowed us to have naval superiority. And rest the world reserve currency status, which is the way it had been done for 600 years, right? From Portugal to Spain. Remember we talked about, you know, how's the Netherlands, which is about the size of, of Indiana, beat the most powerful armada in the world? How's that happen? Mercenary. I mean, they, they printed money, literally printed, printed money. Like, because back then you actually had to print it. There were no ones and zeros. There were no computers. They printed money and they handed it out to mercenaries and they built these amazing ships and, and, and they won. And they were the world reserve currency and the most powerful superpower for about 65 years. Ridiculous. And that, but, but, but it happened. And so the Fed did to the UK what, you know, had been done to every previous superpower. And we're in a weakened state by our fiscal irresponsibility and the graph and corruption that, that goes on. And we're financing things that we can't afford, right? We, we, we don't need to be in two foreign wars. You know, Janet Yellen says, oh, we can afford that. No, no, we can't. If you want to remain the superpower, you can't. And there's lots of history, lots of history. That says when you are fiscally irresponsible, you lose control. Mark, I just couldn't agree with you more. I actually I got this book from my bookshelf here. This is one of my favorite books. Ah, it's yeah, called yeah. Descent of Money. It's extremely good. It's written by a guy named Niall Ferguson, and he actually takes you through the creation of uh, original forms of money. You know, back in the day, all the way through the creation of debt, 
in in Florence and Italy, yep. the Medici's to equities. And he actually ends with this chapter on Chimerica, which is uh, this economic tie in between China and America. And this was this book was written a little while ago. And he, he actually added, when I first read it back in probably 2017, 2018, I was like, I feel like this guy would like Bitcoin. I feel like I feel like this guy would like it, and now he he wrote a new chapter on on cryptocurrencies, very pro Bitcoin. No, Niles, Niles, great, and you know he, you know, good, good Brit, right? Um, and but you know he's been true story. We for the first ever DAS that we hosted, my number one keynote that I wanted was Niall Ferguson. And I've tried many, many times over the years to get this guy to speak. So Niall, if you're, if anyone, if anyone knows Niall. And yeah, you know, I, I was a warm up. coming to your home again. territory here. Yeah, so. I was a warm up act for him once. No um, way. Oh wow. yeah, that was fun. Um, Cause <laughs> he's, he's expensive and, and worth it. I mean, he's, he's a great speaker, but uh, I got invited uh, to speak at this this conference and it was a saudi arabian conference but it was held in greece because they're like i don't think anybody wants to go to saudi right now this is like three four years ago and so they said you know we'll pick up the entire like financial industry and we'll bring them to greece so we'll just you know do a takeover and uh kind of like what we're going to do to to london we're going to take over yeah baby um but but so I was a, a, a warm up speaker um, and then he was the headliner uh, and there were a whole bunch of other speakers, but, but, you know, and, and he's, he's good. And he actually went through the book and the history and um, yeah. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I would love to see him and Lynn Alden speak. Lynn just wrote this great book on broken money, and she goes through these sort of two classes of money that have existed, uh, commodity-based money, credit-based money. People tend to be sort of bifurcated in terms of which is better. I think Lynn makes the correct, uh, in my view, correct argument that you, you need some form of both. Um, and actually where we've broken now is where we're far too heavy on the, the credit side of things. And, but, you know, he, he goes, the, it, you, can, you can mess it up both ways, actually. So, you know, the Netherlands example is really interesting because, you know, but, and I'm actually listening to this great podcast on the fall of the Aztecs. It's like a, six or seven parter on the rest is history. I've showed this podcast so many times. I just love it. Uh, what, first of all, really sad, horrible story, but I mean, an incredible story um, of, of like, I mean, just in terms of human history and the impact that these conquistadors had, I mean, yeah. honestly, in probably a pretty negative way, but, but still it's a, it's incredible that it happened, but they, they go through this, um, this first chapter of this book is on, you know, Portugal and Spain used to compete back in the day when I think it was actually silver was money. Correct. And, and 
there was, I forget which one of them, one of them adapted to the idea that credit, you know, notes could be a part of money as well. It allowed them to finance themselves more effectively. And the, the Portuguese, right? That, yeah, the that, Portuguese. that was Portuguese. That was the nice Templar, right? Right. But you can actually go obviously too far. I would argue we're going too far in that direction right now. But uh, the, you know, the, the Dutch actually experienced something called, called resource curse, which is part of the reason they had all those resources was they discovered oil back in the day. And, and that, what that ends up, what ends up happening is uh, a lot of power and wealth accrues to a very small group of people. It pushes up the value of your, your natural currency and it impacts exports and it ends up being really negative. And you can see some of the effects of that in the Middle East today. So it's very complicated. Oh, you have absolutely. to get a lot of stuff right, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I, what I love about that, right, is, is one, just how, how much history there is all related to this idea of, of exploration, exploitation, of, of the, the resources. And look, commo- to your point, commodity money has a solid, pun intended, history, right? Yeah. When you back currency with, with a commodity, it, it does okay. When, when you don't, it's not good. I, I talked about it. 775 paper currencies in the history of the world. Three quarters of them are gone, like gone. Right, completely gone. And and the reason gold has been money for forever, for 5,000 years, is because it's both commodity and currency. It, it has a commodity use. There's an industrial use. It's it's a hard commodity, it, but it has this monetary use. And it it's not a currency per se in the sense that you know there were days where gold doubloons were used as as currency but now all those gold doubloons and bars sit in bank vaults as the base layer of money and you build currency on top of that through debt and and it's a perfectly fine system to a point and and this where I had I had this Amazing. I think I talked about this amazing conversation with Caitlin Long a couple uh, about six weeks ago when I was down at at the Blockchain Capital annual meeting. And we we spent two hours talking. I mean, just about all kinds of stuff. But she changed my mind on, you know, I'm a big believer that fractions or banking is maybe one of the great inventions of all time. Right. There's fire and there's electricity, but fractions or banking to me did allow you to have greater growth than you would otherwise have if everybody just took their gold bars and buried them in the backyard. I I absolutely believe it's critical. And and I say it all the time, name a country that doesn't have or has a poorly functioning fractional reserve system that you would move to. Oh, wait, right? So this does not happen. So, but her point was in the digital age, the, the ratio is too high. So in all throughout time, we got to around 10 to 12 times turns of leverage, right? You deposit a dollar, you can lend 90 cents. You, de- you take the 90 cents, you can deposit, you, you deposit it, then you can lend 81 cents. And you could do that about 10 or 12 times and be okay because a bank run, right? Which a bank run, if everybody wants their money, it's not there. 
right? It's, it's literally not there. It's in your house and his house and her house. So it's functionally insolvent, the system, but it works as long as there's calm and trust. But a bank run used to take weeks, literally weeks, because you had to physically go and there's only so many hours in a day and people had to stand in line. And today, it's a flash. $42 billion fled Silicon Valley Bank because of Peter, Steele, Peter Thiel's stupid email. And in two hours. So she said, you can't have 12 times anymore. You might not even be able to have six times. I mean, literally, my, my, my mind was blown. I'm like, oh, my God, that's right. That's absolutely right. It doesn't mean we have to do away with fractional reserve. It doesn't mean you have to be fully collateralized, but it can't be as high. I'm like, that, that's, that's some genius right there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with that too. I, this is the, also the point that I'm now just taking a lot of Lynn's points from her book. People should go and read this book, but it, she makes the point that actually with the invention of the, the telegraph and this, this new age of telecommunications, money had to move a lot faster. And because the money that we had at that time was gold and it wasn't technologically adept to how fast we could communicate. What we had to rely on was centralization and abstraction to solve that problem. But now we have something that looks like a commodity money that will mimic that. And where I disagree, so I'm totally on board with all of that. I think where I disagree with, with honestly a lot of people maybe in, in crypto today is when most people would agree with that right up to that point. And then they would say, but my commodity money is the best. That's right. And I just think that we are re-entering an era of multiple commodity monies, not not a million commodity monies for people out there, probably something that will mimic the the network effects of major reserve or major global currencies. Maybe there's one power law, but, you know, we've got the dollar, we've got the euro, we've got, you know, the yen. I think there will be be several of these things. And the, the addition... That, that makes this kind of weird and where the analogy breaks down is uh, there's a technological component to this commodity money, which is unlike anything that has fully existed before. So in the past where you had, you know, a, a commodity and then tech that was built around abstracting that commodity, this is more like they're actually one and the same because the ledger is the technology that the, you know, the ether or the Bitcoin or whatever is the unit of that ledger but there's also like a just a raw technology piece where you can actually build stuff directly onto the money as opposed to on top of the money. It's a weird concept, but that's why I think so many people are people just talk right past each other. Well, it's, it's the problem is it's it's like with Bitcoin, like there's big B and little B. Right, right. There's the network. Right. Which I said I said in at this conference in New York and it's like making the rounds on Twitter. I said, look. There's actually a chance. Now, they, they quoted me as saying it will definitely happen. I said, well, I said, there's actually a chance that Bitcoin could become the base settlement layer for all global assets. Mm. Right. And, like, oh, that, and then there's other people. Oh, of course. Of, of course. That's, that's what we've been saying all along. Like, well, maybe not, but, but okay. But here's the thing. People who are, you know, ETH heads are like, no, 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 there's more transactions on ETH. I'm like, that's not what I said. I said the ultimate settlement layer for the highest quality assets likely will be the highest quality chain. How do you judge quality? 
know, uptime, lack of hacks, security. Okay. So you could, you can make a case for both, but at the end of the day, what I see happening is the highest value digital assets are migrating toward Bitcoin. That's interesting. And it doesn't mean you can't have, to your point, other systems that do other things and even have monetary uh, use cases, but they won't be money. Like if, if, I, if, if you believe, as I do, that, that Bitcoin has won the war for digital gold, right? That, that it is a better form of gold. It's equally scarce and more divisible and more portable. And therefore, it will replace gold as that base layer. Then we can abstract all we want on top of it. And it's not going to be without a fight, right? So I I kind of agree and I kind of disagree again because it's okay. If two people always have the same opinion, one is unnecessary. So we need to we need to disagree on occasion. So look, I don't want to get too technical, but here's the big problem with Bitcoin: it has ten minute block times. So that means that you have 10 full minutes and imagine that during these block times, you know, a lot of financial transactions are going to take place. And because, so like, here's something that happens very often in the Ethereum ecosystem. This is something called MEV. This is a big, big issue. So Ethereum has much shorter block times, 12 seconds. Something like Solana has even shorter block times, 400 milliseconds, 400 milliseconds. So in Ethereum, you have all these decentralized exchanges that are that are built on top of Ethereum. And there are 12 second block times. And there are these things called AMMs, which are basically these passive liquidity providers, consider it passive market makers. And they're just sitting there. If you want to trade with them, they'll take the other side of this trade based on this yep. formula. And one of the problems is, is that price discovery still happens on Binance. So you get these arbitrageurs. And what they're doing is, so you can imagine, okay, point in time, at the end of a 12 second block time, the price on Ethereum and the price on Binance is the same. But then for 12 seconds, the price on Ethereum doesn't move. And the price of Binance does this. Maybe the price of Ethereum goes up here. So you get arbitrageurs that sell on Binance and buy on Ethereum. And what that ends up being is a really bad trade for the people that are on Ethereum. So all these application developers don't like this idea. And actually all the ideological proponents of decentralization on Ethereum want longer block times. But all the application builders on Ethereum want shorter block times. And honestly, Solana is going to, I think, do pretty well on that. Now, the real problem is that Bitcoin's got 10-minute block times. That is just an enormous gulf to bridge. And that's where this technological component in, comes in, where it's actually not just about the most decentralized, uh, decentralized secure settlement layer. There are other factors to consider. And actually, the, the most ironic thing about all of this is that I think the, the blockchain that settles the most transaction, oh, gosh. I'm not, I'm not going to say that, but I think where most activity actually takes place today in terms of stablecoin land is Tron. Tron in the blockchain. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where both USDC and USD, yeah. Tether and USDC. But that's okay because what, what I'm saying is you can have multiple layers. It's, it's like I, I say it all the time. I use a Visa card. Actually, it's a MasterCard as money. I don't ever carry money. I don't have any physical money on me at any time. And I use this, this piece of plastic, but that piece of plastic does not settle to the base layer to my bank account, but once a month, like literally it's got a 30 day block time in the sense that 
you know, Visa keeps their centralized database of all my transactions. And then once a month it settles and I, I send them some cash. And so it goes from the MasterCard Visa network down to ACH, down to Fedwire, down to the base layer. And that's kind of what I, what, what I envision is there will be plenty of things that are faster, you know, doing all the, the batching and, and, yeah, I, I, I don't believe you're going to, you're going to, you know, buy a coffee with, with Bitcoin and settle it all the way. It, it's more of the batching of those transactions. And you may at some point use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. I mean, so far, not so much. I mean, on occasion, there are a few places, but um, I think we're still in, in the development phase and there could be other, uh, Anyway, it's it's a long conversation that we can have on multiple. I agree. And just to what I here's where I'm in agreement with you and where I'm in disagreement with some of the, the, the Bitcoin people, Bitcoiners. I actually don't want Bitcoin to do any of that stuff. I think Bitcoin got it exactly right. I think they just it should be the design principles of Bitcoin are beautiful. It is extremely simple. The simplicity allows it to be very secure, very decentralized, exactly what you want your from your digital gold money. I don't actually want all this other stuff built on Bitcoin. To me, that's complexity. It's not going to be as good. And, and look, all of this exists on a design spectrum of complexity, simplicity. And the more sort of complex you look, the less money-like you kind of look, and but the more stuff you can do. And that's And I would prefer that to just get experimented on on another chain that's willing to take those trade-offs and then guess what? I don't even need to make a choice. I can just have both of those things. And well, and, 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 and to that that's point, my preference would be. And I, I, know, I think this, it's really well said and, and the continuum is really well spoken. But I, again, I keep coming back to this settlement, like where it is. Like right now, the, the bulk of NFTs are pointers. Yeah. Right? They're pointers to a centralized AWS, whatever, you know, that's not on chain, right? That's not on chain. That what, what we want, right. Is the NFT, the digital property, right. To settle down on chain. Now, that's just a, that's just a, that's like a, if you think about a block as a continuum, there's, there's a lot of little, you know, spots and you can fill up the spots with assets that are now secure permanently with this proof of work, which I still believe is, is the most secure way to do a base layer. And I don't, again, I don't, I don't want to do all the transactions between the NFTs in the, in the holding, you know, drawer. I want that to happen up here in these other layers but blockchains this is why i keep talking about 2024 is such a big deal is we go from this mobile world where everything is about the 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 centralized systems of web 2 to this web 3 world and the best way i can de- i can describe it is um, quoting from this this book, The Spatial Web, which if people haven't read it, they, they should read it. It's actually really, really good. 
And if you think about the web, it's, it's two dimensional. Right? There are documents and you can read and write to them, but there's no ability to uh, interact in the space, but the three dimensional space of those things. So you take a, a restaurant, right? A restaurant, you can, you can find it on your phone. You can put it in the maps, but it's, it's two dimensional. But when you enter that building inside that space, a blockchain in the future will be able to determine what you can do, what you can use, what you can, you know, can you, can you borrow this? Can you own it? Can you use it? Could you own a fractional share of it? And it's, this idea that we go to a spatial web as opposed to a two-dimensional web and a web that's interactive, but ultimately it's back to the ABCDs. All of it's just data. And the data needs to be captured, organized, and that's what blockchains do. Then you need really, you know, advanced chips to process and analyze and then you need these AIs, these agents, to let you make decisions and do actions. And that's the digital world. And so blockchain becomes this, this thing that's invisible. Just like TCP IP is invisible to you and I, but without it, we couldn't have the best hour of our week. But I don't, but I don't have to understand how it works. I just know that it does. Me too. I, but I do think there's a really good argument to be made that settlement is important, but that might not be where value ends up accruing. Like, like, okay, here's, okay, okay. okay. I, I, so I, I know. Right, I got, now you're going to make me think over the weekend. Like, All look, right. There are four jobs that a blockchain does execution, data availability, consensus, settlement. And I will say the way that it works, if you want to go over into Ethereum land, on uh, there's main chain ETH and then there's rollups. And uh, execution and data availability, you end up paying a, like the cost for a rollup. It's like 70% of their costs are variable and it's data availability. Yeah. Settlement is cheap. It's cheap. And actually, this sort of gets mimicked in, in the real world. The DTCC secures however many quadrillion assets. Yeah. yeah. It's not worth a quadrillion dollars. So I, I think I would just I would just poke at that as a as an idea. But I, I, I wanna I wanna get your sense. Oh, I like it. I like yeah. it. So I just I, like I would it. just poke. I would just poke. And by the way, this isn't me being. I'm extremely, I actually got excited this week. There's something going on. This is a little bit uh, in the weeds for, for on the margin, but there's this really cool thing going on on Ethereum. Uh, it's something called restaking, which is a, a property of Ethereum that allows you to basically export the settlement assurances of ETH to other blockchains. And I'm looking at it being like, this looks a hell of a lot like what the US does with treasuries. And there are actually very few there are actually very few people that understand sort of the intricacies yeah. of the treasury market and what the relationship there with, with this really in the weeds technical stuff with ETH. But I'm I'm looking at it and I'm being like, man, this looks a lot like that. And it just it reminds me when I see stuff like that, why I'm so excited and why I just want to spend my career. Well, and, and it reminds me of why people it's so are big, so, it's so old, you know, are so lucky. No, it reminds me of why people actually speak spend their Saturday with us, the gift that you gave all of us in coming up with this idea, your ability to create the big questions is, is what it's all about, right? I mean, 
I'll spew answers all day. That, that's what I love to do. But but it's the questions that that drive the the dialogue and debate in search of truth. And that questioning of well, is it like how the U.S. uses treasuries is phenomenal. The you know laying out of the here are the primary uses of a blockchain. So maybe settlement isn't what you know everyone thinks it's cracked up to be. That's the gold in the show. So bravo. I wanna I wanna um get your get your perspective on one sort of concrete thing here, which is our producer Will has been flagging this as as an idea. So shout out Will. But let's look at the the last thing that I want to get your perspective on here is what the market is pricing in now in terms of rate hikes, or should I say rate cuts. So yeah. basically yeah. post post, especially this this last CPI number, the the market is basically discounting the idea that there are going to be any more rate hikes and is actually saying that the implied uh, change in the Fed funds rate in 2024 is now 100 basis points, so a full percent. And there was there was the expectation that maybe there's going to be a rate hike in December. And now, you know, it's, it's never off the table, but barring something, you know, barring something extreme happening, some extreme form of stress, it's, it's, it's unlikely. So, I mean, what what do you what do you make of this? Do you do you agree with these projections? Do you see the Fed cutting? I mean, one, it makes me angry, but not like super angry, but just 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 makes me angry. And I'll explain what I mean by that. It the other, it just makes me depressed. Um, it, it's it's so ketteris paribus, right? It's it's so all things equal, but that's not the way the world works. So basically what this is saying is, okay, um, the Fed has to be done because inflation's back to where they want it, even though it's not quite, as you said, it's three, not two. Um, and therefore they have to go back to cutting rates because rates are too high. Well, okay, but no, that's, that's Ketter's Paribus. I mean, why does a central bank cut interest rates. Why do they do that? They do that when there is economic weakness or in some cases crisis, right? To flood the market with liquidity to preserve, you know, good, well-functioning markets. So this type of surface analysis doesn't anticipate, well, why would the Fed cut a hundred basis points? 20% on five, that'd have to be a pretty shitty economic environment to, to warrant that. Well, if, if we have a shitty economic environment, what does that mean for earnings? What does that mean for, are you telling me that you're, you're rallying stocks because the Fed's done raising and therefore the discount rate's going to go down next year and the value of my stocks are going to go up? Well, but, but if the earnings power is going to go down because economic activity is bad, then stocks should actually be going down, not up. And, I, and I, I think the biggest problem is if you go back in time and look at these histories of, of these, these types of, of uh, uh, data series, they've changed. And they've changed dramatically, one, because most people didn't know they existed 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. It's like my friend says, I, I remember a day when I didn't know the names of central bankers. I long for those days to return. And the second piece of it is that the 
the data is polluted. The average person in the markets today only knows the polluted period from 09 to 22, where we had emergency rate levels, even though there was no emergency for 10 out of those 13 years or 12 out of those 13 years. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I will take the under on rate cuts next year. I Meaning uh, you think there'll be more or less? Uh, less, less. I mean, I, 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 I don't think I don't think there's any reason to cut rates unless there are signs of of real economic slowing and and actually the GDP numbers stabilized at, at a decent level. Um, you know, yes, there are shoes that could drop in terms of uh, employment or your consumer spending. I think consumer spending fell this month for the first time in seven months. Okay. It, 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 it fell. Um, you know, I was, a friend of mine just anecdotally was on a plane, said it was 20% full. It's been a long time since that. The trough, the, tr- the absolute trough in uh, the end of 2002, you know, kind of the 2001 recession post 9-11. I remember taking a flight from New York back to Chapel Hill. Two people. Now, it was a regional jet, so it wasn't like a 400 passenger, but it was, you know, 120 passenger plane and there were two of us on it. That was like the trough, but uh, you know, 20% full that that's a, that's a big number. Um, I've noticed like it's easier to get into restaurants. Um, they're super expensive, but it's easier to get in. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I don't think we're going to crash in 2024 because again, I think we have this confluence of positives in digital adoption that's coming. And I think that's going to drive some, some solid growth with one caveat. The one place that's just gone to stupidville is AI and valuations around AI. I mean, those numbers got to come crashing down. We should check in on AI. I, when I can't remember when we were talking about this, but this is what we said when the Chegg Earnings came out and they said, we're worried about AI stock dumped 40% or something like that. And I don't know, I've, uh, you know, I've just seen this happen in crypto. Usually the thing that everyone is just clamoring on and every, every story that you heard was, you know, it was all based on NVIDIA's success. There were these crazy valuations. And I don't know, my framework on this has been, usually there are two groups of people say, this is going to change the world. Then the other people that say, this is a bubble. And my view would be, again, you're talking past each other on timeframes because Clearly, if something is this exciting and useful, and if you've used ChatGPT for two seconds, you know how useful it is. But it's not going to change the world tomorrow, and there's going to be a huge AI money bonfire, and probably a lot of the uh, probably a lot of the people that are you know screaming about AI now are going to be it's going to go quiet for a little bit, and then maybe it comes back. But yeah. we should do a check in on AI because yeah. I I agree with you. And actually, no, let's definitely do that. Let's definitely yeah. do that. That'd be a good one. All right, Mark. Best hour of my week, my friend. We can leave. Awesome. It all right. Have a great one. Talk to you soon.